Drabblecast B-Sides, Episode 72, Looking for a Key, by Sarah Bickley. Sarah's a student at the University of Montana. Her fiction and poetry's appeared in Pseudopod, Not One of Us, Nerve Cowboy, and The Raintown Review. The story's read to you by Melissa Harvey. Melissa hails from the frozen wilds of Connecticut, where she lives among a myriad of unsorted and unstable book towers. She's beyond proud of herself to be a part of the merry band of misfits that created the Drabblecast Kickstarter books, and can't wait to use them as building material. She would be happy to read your beautiful words. Reach out to her at booyahreads at gmail.com. So without further ado, we bring you Looking for a Key by Sarah Bickley. My lover is a used bookstore, and when I have money we play a game. He closes me inside him and won't let me out till I find a certain book, and I do not know what it is or where it is, and so I have to touch every part of his insides to find it. And I wander him all over and touch his spines with my dry fingertips, slide the books from his worn, smooth wooden shelves and riffle his pages. I like the deckled edges best. Sometimes I will find an uncut page, and when that happens I will turn my back so his clerk doesn't see me, and slit it with the pocket knife I keep only for that purpose. That excites him, I think, more than most things I do and often it means I have found my key. But today I see the book I have cut is too expensive. My bookstore wants me to keep looking. I will go to the dusty inmost, where in the backmost, leftmost corner, there is one short stretch of shelving that is half blocked by the side of another heavy freestanding case, so closely covered that I cannot see the books lined up on the shelf, but must reach in without seeing, groping unevenly, pressing in and disrupting the flush row of spines. I feel as though he is using me like his own numb hand and I feel cheapened a little. But I do not mind feeling cheapened if it means I can express one book from him, have one bit of him to carry away and keep. His books come and go, slowly and constantly, as I and others buy from him, sell to him, renewing his flesh. But his clerk does not come and go. He always has the same clerk, and the clerk is the one part I have never touched, not even when I take my change. The clerk sits all drawn up on a blonde bar stool. I think I touched the stool once, but I don't remember when. And is tall and shaggy and bony in slopes of denim and plaid, and has pigmentation scars on his forehead and gray eyes, and always looks like he shaved last night. He speaks very softly with rare sideways bits of what might be a southern accent. He reminds me of a boy named Neil from a book I read when I was a teenager. But I only ever look at him when I have already found my key. I share a ground floor apartment with a girl named Eddie, who is a manufacturer of ethical heroin. She buys organic dried poppy heads, the kinds that are supposed to be used in flower arrangements, but when is the last time you ever saw a flower arrangement with poppy heads in it? 
And when a shipment arrives, she closes herself in the kitchen and does tremendously complicated things with isopropanol and white vinegar and measures the end product into tiny vacuum-sealed bindles that she mails, she tells me, to boho non-addicts who want the frisson of vice without any child slavers or terrorists or Mexicans having been involved. She claims it isn't very profitable, but she is always on time with the rent. Whenever she makes a batch, she keeps a little back. I think she must have rich parents or something, and makes cheese with vitamin B12, not Benadryl, because I had a bad time on Benadryl once, and gives me a part of it. And it is lovely, except for being so hard on my nose. So this night, I am coming home from my bookstore, and in a little flat paper bag, I have a thin black with pale worn spots paperback called Murders That Baffled the Experts. Its page edges are beige with acid rot and worn feathery soft. It was in the back corner, in the hidden place. It was the second book from the far end on the third shelf down. I could feel a dust of powdered paper on my fingertips when I grasped it, and before I even drew it out, I knew I had my key. Eddie finished up a batch of tar yesterday, the cheese is made with water. I do not understand why this should be, but it is, and has to dry overnight, so it should be ready when I get home, and I should be able to enjoy it along with my book. My room is a narrow little room, right next to the kitchen and opening directly onto the living room. It has a short sofa in it instead of a bed, and a dresser across from that, and when the dresser drawers are open, the whole room is filled." Eddie's room is down the hall, past the bathroom. It is not quite so little, and it has a record player in it. She owns eight vinyl LPs, all but one of them pressed back in the 80s, every one of them lousy and scratched up. She is listening to her Wire Train album right now. I am not much of a music person, but at times like this, I like overhearing her records. To know that someone familiar is nearby gives one an impression of being human among humans and mitigates the loneliness of closing oneself in a narrow room and ingesting opiates and lying on a short sofa and rubbing the soft page edges with compulsive quickness until one's fingers are coated with siftings of yellow dust. Eddie and I do not keep secrets from each other, but all the same, she has never seen my books. The first side of the record is over, and the second does not start. The fingers of my right hand are thick with paper dust, but I pause. I cannot quite hear her. The floors are so quiet here, but I think she is coming to my door. She knocks. Cheney, she says. Yes, I say, twisting on my sofa, reaching with my left hand for the knob of the second-to-bottom drawer on my dresser. I slide it out very quietly. I'm going to have a guy friend over. I just didn't want you to be surprised. You don't have to come out or anything. Is it okay if I come out? Sure, she says. Have smoothies with us. Have some more cheese. Sometimes I think she patronizes me. Anyway, she says, he'll probably be here in about 20 minutes. For me, the mood is already broken. As Eddie puts on the second side of the album, I stash my book in the dresser drawer and lick my fingers clean. 
The dust doesn't have much taste now, although, as always, I get a charge of connectedness when it hits my mucous membranes. A sense that my bookstore knows what I know and feels what I feel, even from a mile away. If only I could read his mind. I have washed my hands and am washing my face when Eddie's guy friend knocks on the door. She opens up and they exchange some kind of greetings. His voice is too soft to make out the words. I dry my face with the cleanest towel. I think it's Eddie's towel. And step out to say hello. My bookstore has thrust his clerk into our apartment. Every inch of him, just like in the store. All the muted colors of him, flannel and denim and shaggy brown hair. He and Eddie have their arms around each other's waists, and she's a head shorter than him and hard everywhere he's soft. With sleek Cleopatra hair and red lipstick and a dark green dress I've never seen before, made of something stiff and sheeny that rustles when she breathes. This is Nial, she says. And this is Mile, he says suppressing his accent for the sake of the rhyme, and plants a kiss on the top of her head. I think we've met, I say. Oh, yeah, he says. His eyes meet mine just for an instant. I cannot tell if my bookstore sees through them or not. He's already looking back at Eddie when he murmurs, Murders that baffled the experts, right? Mm Mm-hmm, I say. Yeah, he says to Eddie. Your friend comes into my work all the time. Wouldn't have pegged her for a reader, says Eddie. Eddie doesn't end up offering me either smoothies or cheese. She is much too busy being glued to Niall. Finally, I creep back to my room. I'm about to close the door, but my roommate is touching the fleshiest part of my bookstore, and some kind of vigilant jealousy compels me to watch. I lie in the dark on my short sofa, my chin up on the doorside armrest. They are canoodling on the long living room sofa under the front window. They're straight across from me, but they only have eyes for each other. At some point, a bottle of red wine appears, and I sidle out and sneak a glass before it is all gone. Nial has flung his flannel overshirt onto the coffee table, and Eddie has slipped off her pumps. Instead of going back to my sofa, I stay standing in the doorway of the dark kitchen. I take a swallow of wine, and the tenacity of it reminds me of paper dust. I wonder if my bookstore knows who is touching his clerk. I have an idea. I sneak back and get murders that baffled the experts from the dresser. I have rubbed the page edges nearly raw, but there is plenty of paper still to be consumed. I run my tongue, just lightly, along the spine of the book, then along the whole perimeter. I am used to a build-up, a slow self-preparation, and without it the shock of connection hits suddenly. I know my bookstore sees what I see, so I watch... Watch as Eddie's crinkly green dress creeps up her thighs. Watch as Nial's soft jeans slither down his. I know my bookstore feels what I feel. Before I know it, I am biting the book, tearing the scented paper with my teeth, chewing it pulpy and swallowing it fast. 
As more of my bookstore's body gets inside me, I begin to feel what he feels. A nauseous pulsing. A growling brick-breaking rage. A mile away, he is wrenching himself from his foundations, hauling himself out of the ground, lumbering over the landscape, his brick walls rippling like a garment, his four corners shuffling like ungainly feet. I have eaten the book down to its spine, and the spine is hard-chewing, stiff and spiky with old glue. I eat it anyway, not minding that it gunks up my teeth and lacerates my throat. Nothing can disturb me. My bookstore is near. I can feel the churning inside him, fallen shelves, gaping cash registers, shambles of books on the floor, and now I can hear him with my body's ears as well as my mind's, crashing his way up the narrow street, shoving aside parked cars, breaking lampposts. Finally, he reaches the front of this building, the living room window behind the sofa, behind the oblivious, sticky coupling of Eddie and Nial, shows him grinding up the front lawn, flattening shrubbery, drawing flush to the window. A huge hand of bricks and books plunges through the glass, which shatters with a noise so loud and high it sounds almost like a scream. Before the shattering has stopped, Eddie is screaming. Nial pulls away from her, fumbling his clothes to himself, his slick penis bobbing confusedly. The hand sweeps high through the room. Nial stumbles back away from it and toward me. My throat is closing around the last of the book. I force it down and draw a breath and lunge for him, pulling him into the kitchen. We cling together in the concealing dark, watching as the hand finds Eddie. Eddie, who is still screaming on the sofa with her hem around her waist. Poor Eddie. The hand slides down the back of the sofa, loosens itself so it can ooze under her. The books flutter as they slide apart, then reforms to bear her up. She suddenly runs out of screams. I do not know if my bookstore means to crush her or to pull her through the window and carry her away. Either way, I think he will hurt her, and I do not want her hurt. Murders that baffled the experts lies heavy in my stomach. A reminiscence of its taste turned hot and acid crawls up my esophagus. I thought I knew you, I say. The hand sags a little. Eddie stares into the kitchen. I thought I knew you, she says, but whether to me or Nial, I cannot tell. The acid paper taste is too strong in my throat. I turn my head away from the scene in the living room, away from Nial, too, and puke on the linoleum floor, heaving it all away. Long lashings of wood pulp slurry streaked with bile and mucus and diluted red wine, throatful after throatful of it. Look, says Nial. I spew out the last of my stomach's contents and look where he is pointing. My bookstore's hand is relaxing. No, dying. No, falling apart. Shedding bricks and books in a slow avalanche down the front of the sofa. Eddie slides forward, lands on the coffee table, and wastes no time getting to her feet and bolting for the front door. Once we are sure the bookstore is dead, Nial and I make a few feeble attempts at tidying up the apartment. There's obviously no point to it. Do you want to stick around and wait for the police? 
Meow says. Not really, I say. There's narcotics in here. Where? I must be looking at him funny because he hurries to add, I mean, I could probably move them. Need some kind of income now that I'm out of a job. The spice jar of cheese is in the kitchen, and it doesn't take much looking in Eddie's room to find the little drawer of vacuum-sealed bindles. Some of them are already in addressed envelopes. Niall ties them all up in his flannel shirt. Eddie ought to thank us for getting them out of there. After all, it's her name on the lease. We walk out of the apartment, past the slumped, dilapidated hulk of the bookstore, the ruined asphalt, and the bashed-up cars. Good thing I parked a street over, says Nial. He is smiling, but he is not joking. Can I come with you? I say. Yeah, I guess. That'll be good, won't it? Hit the road, leave the city, leave the state. Sell some ethical heroin. Check into a motel. Drink vending machine Pepsi, take showers, watch TV. Sleep in the same bed sleep together. Find which drawer contains the Gideon Bible and tape it. Maybe nail it shut. This story was brought to you by Drabblecast Productions, LLC, with episode cover art by Bo Kyer. Thanks to Drabblecast B-Side's $10 a month subscribers like yourself. We couldn't make the world a weirder place without your help, and we appreciate it.